0: where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, February 18th, we are studying Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. We reach a key turning point in the gospel according to St. Luke. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem and begins his journey there to suffer, die, and rise. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves at Bethany Lutheran Church at Fairview Heights, Illinois, and he is also the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Pastor Apple, it's great to be with you.
0: As we get started this morning, Pastor Hemmer, give us some context. This is a pretty important turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Where has Luke been taking us? What's he been telling us leading up to what we get today?
1: Yeah, chapter 9 has just been jam-packed um, with, with all kinds of great content. Um, you had Jesus sending out the 12 at the beginning. There have been two and a half sort of passion predictions, sort of tilling the ground, getting us ready for this, this big announcement or this big shift in the gospel that happens. The very first verse of our reading today Um, So you have uh, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, then you have uh, Jesus predicting that he would uh, suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. There's some beginning conversation about what it means for those who follow Jesus to take up their crosses and to follow him. Then we have sort of the, the transfiguration account there in the middle. You get some more healing that ties us back to the, the miracles Jesus has done before. Another passion prediction, some questions about what it what it means to be in the kingdom of God under the reign of, of Jesus, what it means to be on Jesus' team, a disciple, a follower, who's with Jesus, who's against Jesus, and... That brings us uh, to where we arrive at verse 51. It's sort of the, the culmination of all of those things before that. All of those things have brought us to this precipice where Jesus is about to move the all the following action in the gospel according to St. Luke is going to be focused in a singular direction. From, from verse 51 all the way through the conclusion, and then 51, he's he sets his face to Jerusalem, which takes us all the way to the cross. We're driving to the bullseye of Jerusalem. That's Jesus' objective. It's his target. Nothing will deter him from getting there. But then once he's been crucified, raised and ascended then then the message moves from Jerusalem all the way outward and then and then in similar fashion, nothing will be able to stop the message moving outward from Jerusalem. So you'll have Jesus uh, as Saint Luke records it when he ascends he he tells his disciples that uh, his gospel will spread from, Jerusalem to Samaria to Galilee on out from Jerusalem outward. So what he is doing here is is heading to Jerusalem, fixing his face, setting that as his objective, making clear what what his mission is, and then that mission once he accomplishes it, the church's mission is to take what was done in Jerusalem, his, his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and to bear that out to the whole world. So this is, you, you really can't, as far as the gospel according to St. Luke and St. Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles, you can't overstate the significance of this verse. It, it's the culmination of everything that's happened before, and it prepares us for all the rest of the content of the gospel that is to follow.
0: All right, so we got a really important verse to to talk about today in verse 51. I, I love how you, you made the connection also then into the book of Acts, how what, what Jesus goes to Jerusalem to do then will later go forth from Jerusalem out into the world. And I mean, th- this verse, I think, really helps us to understand what's been happening before this in the Gospel of Luke, that it hasn't just been Jesus sort of going from here to there with no real purpose. But he's he's very much directed, and here it, it becomes quite plain, if it wasn't already, that Jesus is here to do something. And I think that you know this verse, verse fifty-one, ties in very nicely with what we read in a previous text, the first time Jesus predicted his passion, where he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That that Jesus, you know, he's he's not here on accident. He's not doing things by accident, but he's doing things very clearly with this purpose. And that purpose is going to take him to Jerusalem. So that's where he's going to set his face in verse 51. Let's go ahead and and read this text. We're in Luke 9, again, beginning at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's our text for today. That's Luke 9, verses 51 to 62. So, Pastor Hemmer, we've been talking about verse 51 already, the opening of our text. Luke writes that the days drew near for him to be taken up. That that way of speaking that Jesus is going to be taken up. What's that referring to?
1: Well, it's the same phrase that Luke will use to talk about Jesus' ascension. When when he the same Jesus whom you saw go up will return to you in the same manner, he's taken up into heaven. Uh veiled by the clouds and this means this is the the culmination of what he goes to Jerusalem to do and that is to be crucified to fulfill what he already predicted earlier twice now in chapter 9 what he said would happen to him that he would suffer and die he would be killed on the cross and he would rise from the dead so his crucifixion and his resurrection and then all of that uh, is is brought to its completion when he ascends into heaven and sits down at the right hand of the Father, to signify the the completion of that work. So, there's look look at how Luke phrases this: that the days drew near for him to be taken up, for this work to be brought to its fullness, its completion. Those days are. Imminently near. It's what he's been predicting so far in chapter 9. You have, you know, back in verse 22, you have his passion prediction there the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected by the chief priests and scribes, killed, and on the third day be raised. In verse 31, uh, during the Transfiguration, um, he appeared in uh, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus in glory and speak with him of his departure, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then in 44, you get this um, th- this passion prediction as well. Let, the, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So all those things that Jesus has foretold are imminently near. The days have drawn near for all of that to be carried out, his mission to be accomplished, and then for him to be taken up. And because those days are near, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. This setting his face implies it a determination that nothing can deter him from his mission, from his objective, from getting to Jerusalem being the sacrifice the lamb of god um, the one who completes all the the sacrificial rites of the old testament all the ways in which god's people encountered him in this sacrificial system he's the the fullness the completion the conclusion of all that what all those sacrifices had pointed forward to he sets his face to go to jerusalem so there's that determination now God's face is, is a familiar way of speaking uh, throughout the Old Testament. It can either be an act of wrath, if, he, if he, his face turns red, his nose gets hot, um, his, his countenance towards you is anger, then he's about to pour out his wrath upon you. But if he turns uh, a smiling countenance towards you, uh, a gracious countenance towards you, think of the Aaronic benediction, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, to be gracious unto you, then, then his face becomes the the sign that he's going to be merciful towards you. But this is not exactly either of those. This setting his face, which we should say can only be done because God has a face. He' the second person of the Trinity has become incarnate in the person of Jesus. And you have all that the beautiful nativity narrative with which Luke begins his account of the gospel. this little this little baby whose face was kissed by his mother, uh, wiped clean by his parents. He sets that very face, in determination to go to Jerusalem so that the wrath of God might be spent upon him so that for those who are in him, God has only a merciful countenance, a smiling face, a face of favor and his good pleasure to show to those who belong to him. I want to go back to what you were saying about the.
0: The days drawing near, and I, you know the way he writes it here, it, you get the, as you were saying at the very beginning, that there's so much, this is a loaded verse, so much is is being brought to bear here. And the way that he writes there, you know, the days drawing near, reminds me of the way that Luke has written in several cases, perhaps the one that we know the best is at the beginning of Luke chapter two, you know, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And, and Luke has, and we've had some guests point this out. That, that phrase has showed up elsewhere in the gospel, you know, in those days, something happened in those days. And now here in 951, you know, the days drawing near, it's like all of those days that have passed through which Jesus has come are now being brought to bear here as he set again sets his face in determination to go to Jerusalem. So it's, I mean, he, Luke has been preparing us for this very important turn that Jesus makes. Anything in particular about the the city of Jerusalem. I mean, I, I suppose you know he could have set his face to go anywhere or well, maybe he couldn't have. why, why Jerusalem? What's the significance of Jerusalem?
1: Well Jerusalem is, is the place where God dwells with his people, where the place where he has his temple constructed, the place where in that temple sacrifices are offered. Where the people whom he commands to be holy as he is holy can receive the the gift of His holiness given out in that sacrificial transaction, um, where they offer a sacrifice and their sins are removed. That's the locus for that. The place for that is Jerusalem. And over and again throughout the Old Testament, especially after after the kingdoms are divided, Um, It becomes a matter not only of worshiping the right God in the right way, but also of doing so in the right place. So even if you're worshiping the one true God who gives his name to his people, Yahweh, throughout the Old Testament, and you try to do it in the right way, but you do it in the wrong place, you worship in the high places, for instance, and not in Jerusalem, then he is not pleased with that worship. It doesn't check all the boxes. It doesn't meet him where he has promised to be. So Jerusalem is a very particular place, and there's all kinds of confidence that the people will have about Jerusalem. It's it's the last place that is finally destroyed when uh, God sends the uh, the Babylonian army finally to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. The last place to fall will be Jerusalem, when when the Romans destroy Jerusalem, when their their attack uh, their siege of the land of Judah, in uh, starting in about the year 66 A.D., continuing for about five or six years. The last place to fall will be Jerusalem, and the last place within Jerusalem to fall will be the temple. So there's a lot of there's a lot at stake. In Jerusalem, it's the place where when God is dwelling with his people there, they're safe and they're secure. But when he departs or when his glory departs out of Jerusalem, and this happens in the in the prophet Ezekiel as a sign that God is abandoning the people who have abandoned him, his glory departs from Jerusalem. And then it's no longer safe and secure. So it's not just the city, but it's the fact that in this city, God had promised to encounter his people. And so now you have God, in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, encountering his people in Jerusalem to do all of what he's promised to do to be merciful and gracious toward them in the sacrifice of himself, taking the place of sinners on the cross. In Jerusalem, all of which is is foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament, and now the gracious presence of God will shift from being in Jerusalem to being in the person of Jesus, and his presence will be in his church moving forward as he is taken up then. His gracious presence is where his church is gathered, where the Spirit gathers the people of God together. Jesus promises Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am with them. So now the gracious dwelling of God with his people is not in the specific place of Jerusalem, but in the specific place of the Lord's church.
0: So, I mean, so the city of Jerusalem, he... I think we can say he has to go there. And is it I, I think it's in Luke, where later Jesus will say it it can't be that a prophet would die anywhere other than Jerusalem. I, I'm not sure if that's in Luke or not, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's that's in one of the gospels where Jesus speaks that way. So he he has to go to Jerusalem to do these things there for all the reasons that you said, because this is where God has promised to dwell. But then because he went to Jerusalem to do those things, to die, to rise, to ascend, now Jerusalem, it's not about Jerusalem anymore, the city that's there in the Middle East still today, but rather it's about what Jesus has done and he becomes that location of God's gracious presence
1: for us. Exactly.
0: Good deal. So Pastor Hemmer, we got a key verse there in verse 51. Anything else that I don't want to leave anything behind because I know we've, we've talked about just about every word there, I think, but is there anything that we've missed before we move on?
1: I, th- I think we probably should move on uh, because okay. the, All uh, right. <laughs> the rest of the verses in this pericope sort of unpack what it means that he has set his face to go toward Jerusalem. All right. So we'll so still he, keep talking about verse 51. We'll just do it by means of the rest of these verses. Very
0: good. So in verse 52, then he begins this journey and that's really what, what starts now from 951 on Jesus is, we're going to see him journeying, walking, moving regularly, always toward Jerusalem. He starts by wanting to go to a village of the Samaritans. He sends some messengers ahead to make preparation, but those people there don't receive him. Maybe the, the place to start is, it's a village of the Samaritans. I'm not sure that we've met any Samaritans in the Gospel of Luke yet. Uh, who are the Samaritans, and what's the history that we need to know to maybe understand some of the things that happen in this
1: text? Yeah, the, so the Samaritans are kind of half-breed Jews, and you get a lot of this tension between Jews and, and Samaritans throughout the Gospels. In, uh, in John, you have the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And, and there you get the distinction, um, between where and how they worship the Samaritans would worship uh, at Mount Gerizim. Um, but so where, where the Samaritans come from when, As we mentioned before, Jerusalem is destroyed, Uh, some important people are carried off into exile, some other people are killed, and sort of inconsequential people are left behind, and and eventually throughout the time of the exile, while the, the rest of God's people are in Babylon... Uh, those who were left sort of intermarry with some of the Babylonians who were brought in to rule this this now vassal state of the kingdom of Babylon. And so this, the, the Samaritans grow up from there and they become sort of half-breed, and that's how the, how the Jews would consider them. So they were insignificant before um, the exile into Babylon, and now they're less significant, having intermarried with with the Babylonians, they don't have pure Jewish blood. That's how they would be perceived as less than the, the Jews themselves. So on the way to Jerusalem, he will stop by a Samaritan city um, and it's that same kind of animosity that, that informs when Jesus tells the story of, of the good Samaritan, for instance, the Jews would not have considered the Samaritans their neighbors. So it's the Samaritan who turns out to be the neighbor because he's the one who showed mercy. All of that is in play when whenever you encounter this tension between Jews and Samaritans. So now on their way to Jerusalem, they're going to stop at a village of the Samaritans, And in order to prepare for his arrival there, Jesus sends messengers ahead of him to go before his face. Uh, He set his face to go to Jerusalem, just like John the Baptist is the one who will go before the Lord to prepare his way. So these messengers go before the Lord to prepare his way by preaching in uh, this village of the Samaritans that the Lord is coming. But the people 53, this is telling, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. The the exact phrase from verse 51, and it's so apparent to them that his destination is this city where the Jews would have believed the only right worship of Yahweh could happen in Jerusalem and not like we said just a second ago, where the Samaritans believed worship should happen um, at Mount Gerizim, he, Jesus, is on—you cannot deter him from his trajectory of heading toward Jerusalem, and that must have been part of the preaching of these messengers who go before Jesus, that he's now set his face to go to Jerusalem, that that would contain, presumably— um, some understanding of, of what the the reign of Jesus would be, maybe the we don't know exactly what they preached. We don't know how all those details, uh, the content of their proclamation, would have played out. But it's such that the Samaritans perceive he's not for them. That if he's going to Jerusalem, then then he must be a savior just of the Jews or something like that. But so they they reject him. They refuse to receive him. This will be reversed, of course, as, as Luke tells you, now we go back to how the, the acts of the apostles plays out. Um, In just in acts chapter one, you have the gospel going forth from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, acts one, eight in acts eight, Philip will be sent to Samaria, and so the gospel is brought there, and and by the time you get to Luke chapter 9, the gospel has gone out to all Samaria. So, the gospel's not just for the good news of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, is not just for the Jews. Even though it begins with the Jews, it goes forth into all the world, and sort of the step between... Jerusalem and the dwelling place of the Jews and all the the dwelling place of the nations is Samaria. It's the the sort of concentric ring between those other two circles, and so the gospel proceeds from Jerusalem out through Samaria, eventually all the way to the whole world.
0: So the, the rejection that we see here from the Samaritans is going to be reversed in the book of Acts. We're going to cover the book of Acts after we get through with the gospel of Luke on, on sharper irons. So I'm going to have to remember that when we get to that part in Acts to connect it, to see how the Lord still brings that word to the Samaritans, even though they'd rejected him in this case, that the, he provides for the preaching of the word to be received there again later. And I, I think that, that the matter of the rejection here is going to play into the way that James and John, two of the 12, they respond to Jesus, but we're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are talking about Luke chapter 9 with Pastor Jeff Hemmer. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, February 18th. We're studying Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62 with Pastor Jeff Hemmer. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church at Fairview Heights, Illinois, and he is also the assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. Pastor Hemmer, prior to the break, we were talking about the rejection that the people of Samaria have to Jesus coming through their town because he's got his face set toward Jerusalem. But the rejection that we see there in Samaria,
1: that's not unique to the Samaritans, is it? No, it's not. And in fact, the rejection that Jesus will, will face in Jerusalem by the the people whom God has chosen, the, that he carved out from among the nations, the people from whom he will bring the Messiah, their rejection of Jesus seems even more severe. The Samaritans just reject him, refuse to receive him, and he goes on to another village, St. Luke records in, in 56. But the, the rejection of Jesus in Jerusalem means that they will take him out of Jerusalem and nail him to a cross and kill him. So that's that's the severest kind of rejection, not just ignoring him and he goes somewhere else, but rejecting him and rejecting his life altogether. So that, however, is the goal. And and that is what Jesus wants to accomplish, not that the Jews would reject him, but that he would be crucified. And so everyone rejects Jesus, Jew and Samaritan um Jew and Gentile alike, everyone rejects Jesus, and that's that's good. That means that the cross is brought to its fullness, and in the cross is, is reception for all those who rejected Jesus, would reject Jesus, no one seeks for God, all have become corrupt, unclean. In the cross is is God's acceptance of all those who reject Him. So it's not just the Samaritans; it's also the Jews, of course. Hmm. Yeah, I
0: mean, what you were saying reminds me a little bit of what what Paul writes in Second Corinthians five about the ministry of reconciliation. That through Christ, through this rejection that Christ faces, God actually works reconciliation for the world. And so he, again, he's doing what he must. He's he's doing what he must to save the world. He's got his fe- face set to go to Jerusalem he is receiving rejection now from the samaritans and again it will happen from the Jews in Jerusalem later for the time being James and John the sons of thunder as they're sometimes called they react pretty strongly to this rejection and they they ask Jesus about well maybe we should call some fire to come down what what's going on with James and John and how does Jesus respond to them
1: yeah should we should we be uh like Elijah and and call down fire on all the all those who reject Jesus and and strangely it's not those who reject Jesus who get judgment called down upon them it's rather James and John from the inner circle of the apostles who get God's judgment to rain down upon them with Jesus rebuke of them so this this rejection needs to happen but but their rejection of jesus is not does not lead to their damnation because there's still right the gospel will still go out even to samaria and to the ends of the world so this this shows how just how those closest to jesus are often the ones misunderstanding what jesus is about most egregiously so jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, this, this word rebuke in Luke's gospel has been used of demons a couple times. When he rebukes demons, he rebukes uh, a fever. Um, earlier in chapter 9, he rebuked the disciples as well. Um, back in chapter 21, that's that's the, the same word that's used here. So it's it's used of those who are obviously adversarial against Jesus. And so from from within the inner circle of the apostles, these guys who you think would be most on team Jesus, they get the kind of rebuke that they thought should be levied against the Samaritans. Do you want us to call down fire on the Samaritans? And, And who gets fire called down on them? Who gets the rebuke in the end? It's James and John for not understanding what what Jesus and his mission and his reign are all about. And we've seen James and John, along with all of the
0: 12, not understand what Jesus and his reign are all about several times in this chapter already. I mean, you've got Jesus, the first time he predicts his, his passion, he talks about how he must suffer many things. And while Luke doesn't record it, we know that Peter responds negatively to that. He doesn't want Jesus to suffer and die. In Luke, Jesus then very quickly emphasizes the nature of suffering involved in discipleship. We've seen Jesus again in this chapter. You know, he He predicts his passion a second time. And right after that, the disciples aren't talking about suffering, but they're talking about, well, which of us is the greatest? And it seems something similar here is happening where Jesus has begun to meet this rejection already in Samaria, and the disciples, again, fail to grasp that this is a part of what Jesus is going to do, to be rejected, again, in Jerusalem at its fullest, but all the way along there, starting here in Samaria. And because, again, they failed to understand the nature of Discipleship; they receive Jesus' rebuke here. Any, any more on this first part of the text before we move on to these next three interactions, Pastor Hemmer?
1: Uh, I'm ready to move on to these next three interactions because I think they all illuminate what this rejection means. So you have just such a stark contrast between Jesus, who's set his face to Jerusalem, and these people who have their excuses for not not following Jesus to Jerusalem.
0: Well, let's talk about the first one in particular then, because they've got excuses, but the the first guy, it really strikes me, in verse 57, someone, so unnamed, but someone comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. This guy, it it seems, unless I'm missing something, he, he comes to Jesus willing, ready to follow him, but he doesn't get the, yes, let's do it from Jesus, he gets this, I don't know if it's a rebuke, but it certainly is a reality check from Jesus. So take us into that, that first interaction. Maybe what's the misunderstanding of this first person and how does Jesus respond to him?
1: Yeah. I, and I love the the footnote here in the Lutheran Study Bible that says, elsewhere, Jesus always initiated the call to discipleship. Remarkably, the gospel's Never tell us about anyone offering to follow Jesus and then successfully becoming a disciple. In each case, Jesus seems to challenge the self-confidence. I love that um, because it's just so true. No one, no one ever volunteers to follow Jesus. And then you have you have a story about how successful that was. All the people who are with Jesus, who, like we just said, those closest to him are those misunderstanding him the worst are those to whom jesus said follow me so here someone comes out out of the crowd of those who have been taught by him and says i will follow you wherever you go and instead of jesus warm reception of this guy who wants to follow him he's just got this this sort of offhand um not you're, you're right not a pure rebuke but not not the sort of nice guy Jesus that we would hope to find who would would give him some kind of attaboy for wanting to follow after him. Instead, it's just this, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And why does he have nowhere to lay his head? Why is he homeless? Because he's on a journey and the journey will culminate in Jerusalem and where will he lay his head? In the grave. He'll hang his head on the cross. He'll lay his head in the sleep of death in the grave. So, this is, St. Luke does not write this down for this guy, nor for the next guy to whom Jesus says, Follow me, nor for the third guy who says, I will follow you, but. We don't know the outcome of any of these three guys. We don't know whether they followed Jesus. We don't know their names. We, we know nothing about them. But these accounts are written down for Luke's audience, the hearers of the gospel, so that we might know that just how different Jesus is from those who desire to be disciples such that by the end of this we can conclude that there's really only one who's capable of making this journey the apostles will go with him but eventually they'll all they'll all flee they'll all be scattered disciples may follow they they may you know cheer for him praise him as he enters in on palm sunday but but there's no there's no defenders of him when it comes to good friday so only one Can make this journey, and that's Jesus. And for the hearers of Luke's gospel, that's good news, because what we are unable to do journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, pay for our own sins, free ourselves from our sinful predicament Jesus alone has accomplished. The only one capable of doing it is the one who has accomplished it for us. Uh,
0: the Lutheran
1: study Bible note that you
0: brought out is very helpful here that you know no one comes to Jesus on their own initiative and receives a bunch of praise from Jesus always these challenges so the the second one then another one now this time Jesus is going to initiate the conversation he speaks follow me we've heard him say this in the Gospels elsewhere but this this man he has an excuse he says well let me go first bury my father and Jesus responds by saying, let the dead bury their own dead. Take us into the interaction and, and what does that, what may sound like a cryptic phrase from Jesus, what does that mean?
1: So you have Jesus has these, these two sentences that seem like they have very little to do with one another. Something about the dead, let the dead bury the dead, you proclaim the kingdom of God. But really they are, um, in, in Hebrew thought, they're sort of antithetical to one another. On the one hand there's a kingdom of death and on the other hand there's the kingdom of Jesus the reign of Jesus is is the reign of life undoing all of death's effects in in his good creation so either you're aligned with death and you have to attend to the the dying things of this dying creation and then you are just one more dead person burying another dead person, or you are with Jesus and, and his kingdom transforms death by means of resurrection. Death is completely undone in the resurrection. So this is not a kind of practical advice about how we treat our dead. And the church has never used this verse as a way to say, you know, once once someone is dead, we we reject the body in this sort of Platonic worldview. Now you've moved on from just being one more dead person, burying dead people. It, it has nothing to say about how we how we treat the dead, but it has everything to say about the t.Here's only everything is black or white, everything is death or life, everything is with Jesus or against Jesus. It it just carries on exactly what Jesus had said earlier in chapter 9, whoever receives me receives him who sent me um, the one who is not against you is for you. there's there's only there's only two teams there's either with Jesus or against Jesus. there's either death or life. And so he uses this this man's protest, his his uh, excuse, I gotta go bury the dead to say if you if you go back to the dead, you are not with the living, and being with Jesus is with the living. But and while you, like you said that
0: that's not talking about our say funeral practices, or you know, like to, we wouldn't use this verse to say you know a Christian shouldn't care about what happens to their loved ones after they've died and, and take care of the burial and things like that. That's not the point. It's something different. But I do think that that what you're saying about you know you're either in the kingdom of death or you're in the kingdom of life. That certainly has an impact on say what a pastor is going to preach at a funeral and and what uh, the loved ones of a christian who has has died what they're going to believe i mean the fact that they that this person who has died was in the kingdom of life with christ i think that that does have something very uh, hopeful to say when we face that situation of death when it, when it is a, a loved one who's died in christ
1: right the christian funeral is not the dead burying the dead the christian funeral is those who live in jesus drawing confidence from the life that they have in him that not even death can diminish or destroy so right i mean it's just so contrary to logic when when i am standing at the casket and uh in the funeral liturgy we say i am the resurrection and the life says the lord he who believes in me will never die and whoever lives and believes in me uh, will will live even though he dies. So here you are standing next to uh, a a dead person, the dead body of someone who belonged to Jesus, and you say, "This looks dead, but in Jesus' eyes, it's not. This is still the kingdom of the living, and death's power is broken. And this is just this is just an insignificant little sleep. And Jesus wakes people up from the sleep of death all the time." Those who are with him are not dead. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what happens in a Christian funeral is not the dead burying the dead. It's the reign of Jesus over death, his triumph over death. And that's 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 how we treat our dead, is with Jesus' triumph over death by means of his resurrection right and the christian funeral then
0: becomes an opportunity to do precisely what this man is given to do go and proclaim the kingdom of god that even here where it looks like death reigns you know when you're when you're standing there by the graveside and there's this hole in the ground and the casket's about to be lowered into it it looks like death is in charge but it's it's not and that is the the message that is proclaimed very clearly at the funeral is that christ does reign even here and on the last day, that will become plain to sight when this very body is raised from the dead. And so, yeah, the, the Christian funeral is not the dead burying the dead, but it is the Christian taking confidence and having that certain hope in what our Lord has done in his kingdom of life. Beautiful yeah. stuff, Pastor. Ironically,
1: uh, the the uh, the vacuous celebrations of life that people have in lieu of, of a Christian funeral and burial, when all that we have to talk about is, is the dead, that is... That kind of celebration of life where we just think back to how great this person was before he died and what fond memories we have. No, nothing wrong with memories and, and remembering the, the dead. But when when all that is devoid of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, then whatever you call them, celebrations of life are just the dead burying the dead with no real hope and no real comfort.
0: Right, only, only in Christ and the proclamation of his reign over even death, only there is our hope. And that is what we proclaim very boldly at Christian funerals and throughout our lives. So, Pastor Hammer, then there's the third interaction, verses 61 and 62. Another person comes, this time he, enter, he uh, initiates the conversation with Jesus with similar words to the first, but he adds a caveat. He's going to follow, first he wants to say goodbye to mom and dad at home. What does Jesus respond to him?
1: No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And I mean, you we can understand this practically. Um, we don't all put our hands to the plow and right plowed rows need to be very straight so that you don't plow into the next row. Um, it would be the same thing as if you said no one who puts his hand to the steering wheel and turns around to discipline the kids in the back seat uh, is capable of driving a car, right? You you can't go straight when, when your head is turned and it's pulling on your arm. Um, you can't plow a straight line. You can't move forward in the kingdom of God by looking back to the things from which you've come, which is exactly what, what Jesus was saying earlier in chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, this is 23, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, right? So Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's headed toward the cross. If anyone wants to come, he must follow me. Eyes fixed on Jesus, moving forward, hand to the plow, not not deviating to the right or to the left. Following Jesus requires the, the rejection of all the things that a person has come from. It requires that that he die and be born again it requires that all of his previous loves all of his previous affections and attachments um be be put to death and reframed with a new love and a new affection and and a new will and a new heart that comes from being baptized into Christ being covered with his righteousness, being given new life in him, being adopted as a child of God, being given a new heart, mind, will, all these things that is fixated on Jesus and does then renounce all the things from from which a person has come. All the things of death are left behind, and all that lies ahead is following Jesus into death and into resurrection into the grave and out into the eternity, renewed heavens and renewed earth in the presence of God and all of his saints eternally. I mean, in that sense, what
0: Jesus says to this last man is very similar to what he said to the second, that, you know, you've got, you're either looking ahead at Jesus, whom you're following and his kingdom of life, or you're looking back at the kingdom of death from which he called you. And so it's it's one or the other. It's a very similar, you know, which is it, the kingdom of life or the kingdom of death? And Jesus calls, "Follow me into the kingdom of life," which does go through death, as you as you said. What does this one have to say though about? I think maybe one of the parts that that often troubles Christians is is you know this man he just wants to say goodbye to his, his parents. What is, what does this have to say about the relationship that a Christian has? with family members. I think you use the word it gets reframed. Can you flesh that out a little bit more?
1: Yeah, so just like the the previous discussion about let the dead bury their own dead has has nothing to say about how we treat the dead and how we how we care for other dying people. It's not it's not a proof text for abandoning the dead. So this is not a proof text for Abandoning your family and and moving forward with Jesus, it 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 is hyperbole. It it's a statement in the extreme to prove the point that that Jesus is saying following him costs you everything. Now you can't neglect your family. You can't be like the Pharisees who say, "Well, we all of our money is is korban. It's dedicated to God. We can't we can't help our parents anymore." We can't be attached to the things of the world anymore. None of that, right? Um, that's not the point that Jesus means to say. But being with Jesus does reshape our loves. It reshapes how we view our, our callings in the world, right? And so we're not called anymore first to be children of our parents or uh, husbands of our wives or wives of our husbands or parents of our children we are called first of all to be hearers of the word to be disciples of jesus and and if any of those other vocations comes into conflict with that primary vocation then it is an all or nothing then it is we we only have Jesus and nothing else but with Jesus, we also are are then sent out into the world where we where we inhabit all these other uh, vocations that He's given to us, where we are um, children of parents and parents of children husbands of wives and wives of husbands, where we are neighbors and friends and employees and uh, employers and co-workers, and we're all of these things, but we derive all of those identities from who we are, first of all, as baptized children of God, people whom the Lord calls holy and set free from sin and re reshaped with his goodness and mercy and the holiness that he sees us in, and that shapes then how we, or reframes, to use the word uh, that we used earlier, reframes how we view all the rest of those vocations. But it's it's hyperbole so that we don't miss the point that following Jesus costs everything. And oh. like we said earlier in this hour, the only one who can pay this price perfectly is Jesus. The only one who's willing to spend everything is Jesus. The only one who would be a perfect disciple of Jesus is Jesus. So on the cross, there's only one who's nailed there. And all the rest of us receive his righteousness, receive his perfect faith, receive his perfect discipleship as a gift. That's a fantastic gospel
0: handle for this text, Pastor Hemmerer. we got about three minutes here in the morning. Help us to to wrap things up. And again, give us the good news that we see in this last part of Luke chapter 9.
1: Well, the good news is that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and nothing can deter him. And you have his his perfect determination to go to Jerusalem to be the sacrifice set against the wavering determination of of these three people who become examples to the hearers the uh, the first guy who who may or may not be deterred by the fact that there's there's no home base for Jesus that it's just a journey to Jerusalem the second guy who who has attachments to things of this dead world and wants to have one foot in each kingdom and then the third guy who doesn't want to leave his old life completely has to go say his his goodbyes first they they fail to do what Jesus alone is capable of doing he sets his face Nothing nothing will alter his course. He's going to Jerusalem, and he's not going to Jerusalem to kick out the Romans, to take back the kingdom, but his kingdom, his rule, his reign by means of grace and mercy, he will accomplish from the throne of his cross, and then he will be taken up. So he has a laser-like focus on Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. Nothing will deter him. But then once that's accomplished, once those days have been completed and he has been taken up, ascended into heaven, then then that laser-like focus becomes sort of the inversion. Then, then the gospel shines forth from Jerusalem out to all four corners of the globe. Everyone is included. In, in the forgiveness that Jesus obtains on the cross, that gospel, that good news is not just for Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, but it's for all nations. The forgiveness he wins there at the cross that he alone can accomplish is made available to all people. And so... His his precise focus on Jerusalem becomes his his very broad focus on the whole world as those who can receive the benefits that he wins on the cross.
0: Pastor Jeff Himmer is pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, and also assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, helping us today with Luke chapter nine, verses fifty one to sixty two. Pastor Himmer, thanks for being our guest today. It's been a pleasure, Pastor Apple. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. Luke, particularly chapter 9, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.